And now, with Sound Investing, here's Paul Merriman. Well, I'm very excited because next week about this time, Chris and Daryl and I will be uh, discussing an important topic. And that is that we are going to be doing a podcast and YouTube piece where we discuss uh, the updates to the best-in-class ETF portfolios, uh, both discussion about how those portfolios are built, the kind of risk that you take with each of those portfolios. Uh, We'll also talk about why uh, Chris made the changes in the portfolio, talk about the new Avantis and the DFA ETF, so much to talk about. But I want you to, to I want you to join in, and here's how you can join in. We are going to have the new portfolios and the information from Chris uh, up on the website later this week, uh, possibly by Wednesday, but it could be Friday before it gets up. And But I want you to take a look and come up with some questions, things that you, if you hope you'll read the article and information that, that uh, Chris puts together, he puts a lot of work into that and it would help you understand why he's making the recommend, recommendations that, that he has. And uh, But to email us, in fact, to make it real simple, uh, let's bypass uh, a level and just email me, paul at paulmerriman.com. Uh, now, you'll probably see something in the newsletter this week that says email info at paulmerriman.com. That's fine. I should get that by next Monday when we do the recording as well. So, uh, we appreciate your feedback and questions and make sure that you understand how and why these changes uh, are being made. Uh, I, and I, by the way, the, after one brief discussion about recent returns, I'll be taking a whole bunch of uh, questions from you. Hopefully I'll get through about 10 of them. And uh, even though I can't get them all, uh, to all of them, please keep them coming because uh, I really appreciate your questions. I think they're they're good for a lot of us, maybe not all of us, but for a lot of us. So I've got a um, a piece that we're going to write and a podcast we're going to record uh, in the coming weeks. I'm not sure when, but um, it will be about performance. And at this point, my challenge is to share with you 20 things that I think are really important about understanding performance, because the biggest challenge we have is that performance, particularly where the earnings returns are high, uh, typically uh, do not come with a straight line. In fact, even when returns are low, I wouldn't call it a a straight line. Uh, and so in the volatility that comes with uh, with risk also comes a lot of disappointment, particularly on the short term, on a short-term basis. So um, I, that performance piece, I think, is very important. And when I think about putting together my 
list of a thousand things you should know about investing, uh, I can guarantee you that 20 of those thousand, maybe even a few more, uh, will be on that list uh, of a thousand. So uh, I just want to give you a a heads up here. I was alerted uh, to the uh, release of a particular set of historical returns that uh, come out of New York University, and uh, they these results uh, go back to 1928. Surprise, surprise, we've talked about that for many years, going back to 1928. But let me just give you a few things that come out of this report, and we'll have more later, particularly when we focus in on performance. Well, the first thing that it reports uh, is how stocks, bonds, and cash did last year. And it turned out that stocks were up 18%. Now, I want to challenge that for a second, because I'm sure anybody who owns the total market index in the U.S. was up, (coughs) excuse me, 20% plus last year. It was the S&P 500 that was up 18%. Bonds, according to this, uh, the 10-year treasuries, up 11.3. Well, I can guarantee you that T-bills were not up 11.3, and they are a form of fixed income as well. So just as we're cherry-picking one particular uh, asset class with equities, we're doing the same thing uh, with the bonds, 10-year treasuries. And then there are the three-month T-bills, what we would consider cash. And that return uh, for last year was 0.1%. 0.1%. So uh, what a range, huh? And as you know, that's not necessarily unusual, but that certainly is a huge difference compared to the very long term because when we do look back, to 1928, and we look at stocks, again, looking at the S&P 500, the return is about 9.8, and for bonds, 4.9, and for cash, those three uh, 30-day, or sorry, three-month T-bills, 3.3%. So uh, that shows us what a huge difference there is between stocks and bonds in the long term. And remember, when we're talking about trying to show you in the we're talking millions about how you can make more money, uh, those of you who feel a great sense of comfort with bonds just have to know that the expectation for return in the long term is very low. And that difference between about a 5% and about a 10% return, if you put money to work, over a period of years, including the accumulation period and the distribution period, you're literally talking, if you're putting away $5,000 a year since the 40 years of accumulation and living off it for 30 years in retirement, you are literally talking about $10 million in difference over what you would get in terms of distributions and what you would have left over for your heirs. So, a huge decision and so much historical information uh, to support it. By the way, 
we, uh, uh, we, we have to remember that you don't spend how much you make until you adjust for inflation, what the money will buy. If you, if you in, inflation adjust those long-term returns, it's about 6.8% for stocks and 1.9% for the bonds. So, uh, and by the way, uh, you would basically just have broken even, not made anything uh, on the uh, uh, the three-month T-bills. So therein is, it lies some very important information. Now, people can say, well, but that includes information about uh, the time back in the uh, in the thirties and uh, during the war and all of those things that information's not pertinent now, but uh, maybe it is because uh, as I've said many times, uh, the the results of investments up and down uh, are about human emotions uh, in a lot of ways, and so it doesn't necessarily matter what the physical things are that are going on so much as how markets respond to it. And you can have great bull markets in the 30s as you had great bear markets in the 30s. And of course, since the 30s beyond there, returns have been much higher when you include the 30s uh, in the long-term computation. But I still think those years are important. But then we look at the risk side. And in this particular report, and there's a lot more, but I'm gonna just going to tease you with this one. What is it that attracts people to the safety of the fixed income? And in this case, talking about just the 10-year treasuries versus the S&P 500. What do the worst of times look like? Well, if you compare the worst days of the S&P 500 to the worst years of the 10-year treasuries. The worst day for the S&P 500 was a loss of 20.5. Now, I actually thought that number was over 22% reflecting the loss on October 19, 1987. And uh, it was not fun to be there. But uh, according to this study, the worst day was a loss of 20.5. The next worst day was a loss of 12.9, and then 12, and then 10.2, and then only then do we break the 10% uh, uh, level, and that's to 9.9. A negative 9.9 was the fifth worst day. When you look at treasuries, instead of days, let's think in terms of the worst years, because the worst year uh, for the 10-year treasury was a loss of 11.1 versus a loss of 20.5 for the worst day with the S&P 500. And then it drops to negative 9.1 and negative 8.3 and negative 8 and negative 5 and negative 5 and negative 3. So it is no question if you looked at the worst days at the S&P 500, uh, they would be horrible. And the days, worst days with U.S. Treasuries would be very small differences. In fact, where the big surprises typically come are up to the upside, not to the downside. 
So you can understand why a lot of people are attracted uh, to the treasuries. So we will dig in more into this uh, this study when we talk about performance, but I just wanted to give you a tip of the iceberg there, and now I want to spend some time going through some questions. And I'll try not to make this a one-hour presentation, but, you know, that happens, I'm sorry to say. The first one, and by the way, I really love this salutation because it's the right salutation. Brooks says, hi, team. Hi, team. Not hi, Paul. Not hi, Daryl or or Chris or Asia or all the other people involved in this process, but hi, team. Now, she's actually writing on behalf of her mother. I don't know that her mother knows she's doing this, but that's what this email is about. Because her mother has received $100,000 from uh, her father's life insurance policy, and uh, and then the mother has another $60,000 uh, in a teacher's uh, annuity. I don't even know if that is liquid, but that's what the conversation is about. And um, the good news is her mother has enough money to live on. And so this $160,000 uh, could be put to better long-term use than sitting in a settlement fund at an insurance company uh, and in the teacher's annuity. Uh, that she has. At least that's what uh, Brooke thinks. What she has suggested is she should be more aggressive, and she says slightly more aggressive, uh, than a Vanguard target date fund for her age. And uh, she says, I'd like to use Vanguard and, uh, uh, and don't need to get too fancy with investing this but I wonder what I would, what you would recommend. She does not, again, let's remember this, need the income. What we don't know about the mother, and I remember this so well from my years of being an advisor, when, when, when our clients would want to help the parents do the right thing, not understanding that the parent had spent a lifetime in CDs or bonds and never experienced the, uh, the stock market and the volatility and opening up monthly statements uh, to show that the portfolio is either up or down. And so a thing I would be concerned about is whether or not her mother will be able to accept the risk that she's likely going to face. Because even if she puts her mother's or suggests that her mother's money go into the Vanguard target date fund for her age, that fund at this point would be 50-50 stocks and bonds. Well, that is, that is the same asset allocation equity fixed income that I have at age 77. But in a target date fund, according to what I see at uh, at Vanguard, the 2020, 
She's retired. The 2020 fund is uh, 50-50. Here is the bad news. The bad news is that portfolio is likely to lose along the way at the end, not of a day, but of a year, 15 to 20, maybe even a little more than uh, 20%. That's what we know if we look at the S&P 500 and uh, the government bonds. So uh, that is the risk. Now, I'm not sure that her mother's going to be happy with exposing herself to that kind of, uh, of risk. But the beauty of the target date fund, as opposed to maybe getting more risky and, and adding some other uh, equity funds to the portfolio to up the ante in terms of risk, I don't know if she needs to see the pieces. In fact, if she's going to be 50-50, I might even be very comfortable with something like the combination of 50% in the Wellington Fund and uh, let's say 50% in the uh, in the Wellesley Fund. Now, that would be a slightly different kind of portfolio than she's going to get in that target date fund. It will be a little more oriented to... Um, those uh, funds that receive dividends, more value in the in the portfolio. Um, but I think the challenge is that volatility, and uh, and then it's the question of how to get in. And 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 Brooke asks uh, whether dollar cost averaging would be the right thing, or throw it in all at one time. And I'm thinking for the first year, it might not be a bad idea to dollar cost average in. That way, if she happens to have a bad month along the way, particularly you know early on, that it will impact only a part of the portfolio, not all of it, because uh, the mother is 66 years old, and if she's in good health, you know this this $160,000 that she doesn't need could um, mean a lot to others uh, if she's willing to take a little more risk. All right, I hope that helps, Brooke. Now, number two, this one comes from Bill. Bill says, I'm 57 years old and have been following your ultimate buy and hold strategy for many years, uh, and he's got about a million dollars tied up in that strategy. But uh, he's changed employers, and um, because of the new plan, he is limited as to the funds he has available. So what he wants to do is to possibly, with uh, part of the money, go into the two funds for life. And what he wants to know is, is there any real advantage between the buy and hold, the ultimate buy and hold, and the two funds for life strategy. Well, I would respond to that. Uh, if you were 21 years old, I would say it's huge. But uh, at, at age 57, uh, let's talk about the difference between those two. In fact, uh, let me just to make it easy, Bill, let me do this. Let me pretend you're 60 for a few minutes here and say in the two funds for life strategy, 
you're going to multiply your age times 1.5. That would be 90. That would be the percentage that you would have in the target date fund in the portfolio, and the rest would be in small cap value. So you would not be getting a very aggressive uh, at that point, and that target date portfolio, don't forget, it is mostly in the equity portion, large cap growth, both U.S. and, uh, and international. Uh, and maybe it's not even just large cap growth so much as large cap. And in fact, uh, at Morningstar, they also have a giant classification, and that would be a, a lot of giant companies in uh, those portfolios. Now, when you had, or if you still have the ultimate buy and hold, remember how you how you build that in the equity portion, whatever that equity portion is. Uh, because I'm 77, I happen to be 50% in uh, equities. But my percentages in what asset classes I would have in terms of equity, the percentages would be the same whether I'm 77 or, or 22. And that would be basically half large, half small, half value, half growth, as a matter of fact, a little more than half value. You've got to have a choice, as you know, between 70-30 U.S. international or 50-50 U.S. international. In, in, in fact, if you wanted to, you could build it any combination of equity and fixed income you want. You can just uh, figure out if you wanted 80% in equities, how much would that mean in each of the 10 equity asset classes? Well, that sounding like 8% to me and 20% then would be in the bonds. So the point is that's important is that if you go to the two funds for life at, in your case, age 57, you're going to be completely changing the relationship between the equity asset classes. That doesn't make it bad, but it does make it more conservative. Now remember, if you look at the day-to-day -day or the annual volatility, the difference between the ultimate buy and hold combination of equities and the S&P 500 is not that much. In fact, the standard deviation of the worldwide portfolio is a little less than the S&P 500. So I could say that you're going to be taking about the same risk with the two funds for life, but giving up the possibility of having that greater exposure to the small and the value and the REITs and the emerging markets. There's a whole bunch of things going on inside that ultimate buy and hold that are not going on inside the two funds for life, particularly when you get to be 57. Again, if you were 20, you'd have 30% in the target date funds and you'd have 70% in the small cap value. Now that would be more aggressive 
than the way we build the uh, ultimate buy and hold. So you'd be a little more aggressive if you were young, but less aggressive as you get older. And that may be just fine for you. Uh, The other thing is, and this may make a difference to you, the other thing is that with the target date fund, particularly once you're old enough that you've eliminated the small cap value altogether, and I'll get back to that in a minute, but that once you get to the point that the small cap value is is gone, then uh, the, the target date fund is going to take care of deciding what the combination of equity and fixed income is going to be for the rest of your life. They're going to do it automatically. And if you don't want to have to think about that, it'll be an easy way to handle that. On the other hand, if you stay with the ultimate buy and hold strategy, and as you get older, you decide to be more conservative, it means that you are going to have to create the glide path. And I don't think that's a very difficult thing. You could, you could replicate the glide path of the, the Vanguard target date fund. I happen to know that at age 77 and 78 and 79 and 80 and for the rest of my life, if I followed the Vanguard glide path, I would be 30% in equities. That's what it says, 30% for the rest of your life. That's what they show in their glide path. And I'm thinking I'm willing to take more risk than that. So If you stick with the ultimate buy and hold strategy, you have the ability to fine tune how much you have in equities and how much you have in fixed income. Now, if you do want to make it simpler, the other thing you could do certainly is you could go to one of the four funds for life strategies that have very similar track records, particularly I'm thinking now to the extent that you want to be 50-50 U.S. international, you could use the four-fund strategy that is 50-50, and I hope you'll be around next week when we talk about that that topic with uh, Chris and Daryl. Question number three. I'm 36 years old, and in the accumulation phase of my journey. My plan is to avoid a yearly taxable event when rebalancing. This is about a taxable account because rebalancing doesn't impact uh, an IRA or a 401k or other tax-deferred or tax-free program. So, of course, the challenge is when you rebalance, that you are going to uh, potentially trigger uh, a taxable event. So here is the plan. One, do a yearly review, and this is this is the investor's plan. Uh, do a yearly review of the past performance of each fund in my taxable account large, small, and international index funds at Vanguard, and two, to set the following year's contributions greater towards last year's losers 
and lower for last year's winners and repeat yearly. Would be grateful to hear your thoughts on the strategy. Well, that is, that is the best way to rebalance, and that is to rebalance with new money. Now, in the equity part of your portfolio, uh, if you're comfortable with it, uh, a, a great case could be made that 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 you really you don't have to rebalance, particularly if you're diversified across five or ten different equity asset classes. Um, but I understand there is the possibility that you could pick up some additional return by selling something that's hot and putting it into something that's not. Uh, you could do that. Uh, and you'll actually, with the way they're, they're filling in the underperformers and not giving any money to the outperformers, they're going to get to the same place, but there'll be a time when the new money isn't going to get you there. But I don't think that's all that important when it comes to equity. I certainly have a different sense of that, particularly as you get closer to retirement, that that balance between fixed income and equity uh, is important to maintain to be a little closer than you have to worry about one equity versus another. And that's particularly true when you have a lot of different equity asset classes. One of our uh, listeners brings up an interesting point here in uh, uh, question number four, uh, and that is that um, the interest rates on a mortgage uh, in the early, the, the payments uh, on a mortgage in the early years primarily goes to pay interest and very little goes towards the principal. That's the way they're amortized. And uh, so uh, he feels that it makes sense to try to pay that mortgage off early uh, r rather than to be making investments with that extra money. And he, he finishes by saying, by the way, I paid my mortgage off six years ago and have no regrets. Well, uh, I can tell you, Brandon, I always liked getting my mortgage paid off as soon as possible. It was just an emotional thing. I did not like uh, owing money to people. Uh, I always have lived with the the fear of a catastrophic event coming. So that uh, motivated me to do things that probably were not in my best interest. But the more important consideration for me in trying to give guidance to people is that I would always uh, prefer putting money into a, an IRA or a 401k, particularly if we were missing a match opportunity, uh, before I'd ever put money towards uh, uh, additional money to the mortgage. Uh, I would want to max out, actually, uh, the 401k and the IRA, uh, because I think particularly the, the younger we are, the more years we have for that to be compounding a tax deferred or tax-free. It's a big deal. So that has always been my guidance, that 
it's fine to pay off a mortgage, and this is very general, once you have taken advantage of those uh, tax-free or tax-deferred investments, uh, and in many cases, obviously, because you're going to get a match or because you're going to get a deduction from your taxes, which you will not get as you prepay your mortgage. I might mention here before I get to the next question, I got a lot of questions that have to do with best in class and building those portfolios that that we recommend and which ones would be right for you. I'm holding those until I have the real brains of the outfit with us uh, in the coming weeks. I also have gotten a lot of, of questions about M1. And uh, we are going to do an updated uh, podcast YouTube piece uh, on M1 and uh, and answer those as well. I'm sorry I don't have the time, but I think we'll get a more complete answer when we have Daryl and, and Chris with us. Now, question number five, maybe, maybe I should be holding this one for later, but I, I think I can answer it uh, sufficiently. Uh, another Chris uh, asks, uh, he says, um, I had a quick question about one of your charts on the 90 years of evidence article and charts. I hold most of my retirement at Vanguard in VTSAX. And I suspect most of you know what that is, the Vanguard Total Market Index, biggest fund in the world, uh, over a trillion dollars in the total market index. But the question is, with Table 8, the annualized returns over 30 years. He, he says, when I put an S&P stock like uh, VFIAX uh, into Morningstar and see the 30-year growth of $10,000. Uh, it follows the chart pretty closely at about 10.2%. And by the way, I didn't mention that, that VFIAX is the uh, admiral shares for the Vanguard S&P 500. However, he says... If I use your recommended large cap value, VVIAX, that's a Vanguard fund, and put it in Morningstar, the returns are much less than appear on the table. Now, here's a huge challenge in sharing long-term returns. It is or I should say, we are doing our best to find funds and ETFs that replicate the work of DFA, the way they build portfolios. That's one of the reasons that the new Avantis ETFs are of great interest to us, because they are built to be as much like DFA uh, as we can get. And DFA, as I mentioned earlier, I think, is coming out with a series of ETFs. The point is this. 
that we have used the DFA indexes going back to 1928. Now, obviously, they are theoretical because nobody was, was building indexes back in 1928, nor did they know the difference between value and growth, nor did they know the difference between large and small. As a matter of fact, it wasn't until about 1925 that the public, for the first time, uh, started to understand that stocks were a better thing to own for the long term than bonds. But the index that we're trying to replicate at DFA, the companies are smaller. The value is more deeply discounted than what you get at Vanguard. I mean, that is just one of the challenges. Now, sometimes it looks like Vanguard is a superior fund. For example, over the last decade, their small cap value fund has done better than the small cap value fund at DFA. Why? Because the average size small cap value company is about twice the size at Vanguard than at DFA. And during this period of time, the more deeply discounted and the smaller the companies, the lower the returns. Other times over the long term, we will see that DFA is far better than Vanguard because, again, Vanguard, is in whether it's small or large, is going to be larger and less deeply discounted than DFA. So there are going to be these differences, and they're going to show up to be pretty radical sometimes. So the question is, since this person is considering moving some of his money into the four fund strategy um, is trying to figure out whether that's going to make any sense. Well, here's the interesting part of this. I don't know what Chris has available within whatever account this is, but let's assume that he has free access to the Vanguard funds through Vanguard. Well, if he has that, he also has free access to all of the ETFs that we are recommending. And they are commission-free uh, at Vanguard. All of them in the best-in-class are available at Fidelity, at Schwab, and at Vanguard, including Avantis. Oh, and M1 as well. So therein lies the difference. So we have all sorts of reasons why Things aren't going to always add up. One, because the difference between size of two particular funds or ETFs. One could be how deeply discounted the value is. One might be how many stocks they have in the portfolio. One of the reasons sometimes DFA has looked better in the past is because they may have thousands of companies. In fact, one of their their, their funds has over 5,000, I believe it's a small cap value fund, international. Uh, and you're not going to get 5,000 as far as I know in any other uh, individual fund. 
but sometimes the, there'll be big differences. In fact, if, I've written about this in the past that you can look at a Russell index uh, uh, versus an iShares index uh, versus a Wisdom Tree index, and the returns can be very different. It's certainly one of the frustrating aspects of trying to help people through this process and to make things more complex. If Chris does his job, he's going to have the right size. He's going to have the right, the right discounted value. He's going to have the best diversification. But it could be that during a particular period of time when you're in that particular fund, that larger companies did better, more growth-oriented companies did better, and a particular index that had fewer rather than more actually did better because the fewer didn't pick up some of the dogs that were in the other one. I mean, there's just so many forces pushing these returns around that you can't have, you cannot have the control that you want. And one of the reasons you can't have the control you want is because you have no idea how big versus small, value versus growth, U.S. versus international, equity versus fixed income. You don't know how it's going to act for the year, two, three, or four, five, even five. In fact, even ten. I think it's about time to take a short break. Let Don McDonald weigh in here for about a minute, and I'll be right back for question number six. Talking Real Money, I'm Don McDonald. It's December 2018, and you want to buy a car for $38,000, exactly the amount you have in your bank account. However, something comes up, and you can't make it back to the dealer until February of 2019, when you're told that the same car now costs over $80,000. So you decide to wait until the end of the year to see if the price comes down. In December of 2019, you head back to the dealership and discover that the car is now almost $400,000. It isn't until December of 2020 that the car's price drops back below $40,000. This isn't a crazy fantasy. It's what would have happened if you tried to use Bitcoin as a currency. In December 2018, it would have taken two Bitcoin to buy a $38,000 car. Yet just a year later, you would have needed more than 11 Bitcoin to buy the same price car. Can you imagine your U.S. dollars fluctuating like Bitcoin has? Such currency volatility would be an economic disaster. Yet there remains a huge group of speculators who continue to argue that Bitcoin is a credible alternative to old-fashioned currencies. Obviously, it's not. Plus, it's a pretty lousy investment. I'm Don McDonald. More at TalkingRealMoney.com. All right. Question number six starts. Greetings from Germany. Just started reading the first chapter. So far, so good. John is talking about uh, his, uh, he got his copy of, uh, we're talking millions, uh, 12 simple ways to supercharge your retirement. But he says, I'm stuck on one thing, the 300,000 at 65 turns into a million dollar payoff. You know, how could that be? Well, this is important. Because remember our commitment in, in what we believe anyhow, I can't commit to the future, I don't know, but 
from everything we know about the past, each of these 12 decisions that we're going to hopefully help you make should lead to an extra million dollars. Now, how could you how could you measure that? How could you know that? Where do you have to be at age 65? How much did you have to put in? What kind of return did you have to get? What kind of return did you get in retirement? How long did you live? There's a lot of what ifs, but here's the bottom line. We see the payoff coming uh, from, from the money you set aside to retirement that we're talking about the long-term money. We're not talking about money you're saving for uh, uh, children's education or for a vacation. We're talking about the long-term money from which you are going to earn a living, take income during retirement, and finally you're going to pass on and you're going to leave money to somebody, charities, children, whatever. Very few people want to die broke who have the money that they don't have to do that. Okay, so here's how we measured it to see, to, to kind of show how simple this could be. And you can question whether we're cooking the books here, but here's how it's done. If somehow I could help you find a way to make or to have an extra $300,000 at the time you retire, we make the assumption 65. Now, I know it's likely that people starting to work right now will be working until they're 70 in most cases. And that will be a normal retirement, not 62 or not 65. We'd like to change that for them if we could help them do that. But that if you have $300,000 and if you took 4% out of that 300000 to live on, that means you'd get $12,000. And we're going to assume you're going to live 30 years. Now, a lot of people are going to be living 30 years if you looked out 40 years from now. There are a lot of people living to be 95 now. So you're going to take out 4%, but then we got to assume you're going to make some rate of return that will be more than that 4%. So we could assume you make 8% or we could assume you make 6%, which means you've got some money left over. So the the money that's left over, you're not taking out, it starts to grow. Now, there are two things that happen when that money grows. When that money grows, it means the 4% turns into a bigger number. And it means the number that you have at the end of your life is obviously bigger. But when you add up, remember, the real payoff from investing for a lifetime is what you get to spend for food and fun and for giving away. That's fun, too. But that that annual payment plus what you leave to others That is the total. And if you live to be 95, between what you're going to spend, taking out 4%, 
and what you'll have left over for family is really likely to be over a million dollars. Now, a lot of that comes from the money you spend. Because for 30 years, you will probably take out an average of around $18,000. You know, you're, that's a lot. That's almost $600,000 there. And more than likely, the pool of money could be around 600000 There's a lot of unknowns, but the million is legitimate. And the three hundred, that's not so much to fight for. And when you got 12 ways to get there, remembering that each half a percent is supposed to convert itself into an extra million over a lifetime, even if you fail on a few of those, you're probably going to be just fine. I love number seven. It shows the common challenge we have in responding to, to most questions. And the problem we have is that the answer is typically it depends. And the it depends comes with so many questions that then, you, then you're not sure whether they've really answered the question. Well, certainly probably not to the extent that people would like us to, but I do like this because it represents uh, a, a huge difference between having a business and having a passive investment. Uh, and here's the way that uh, this gentleman presents this David. David, I love it. He says, a lot of people buy a home, which is a fairly non-diversified investment, and don't necessarily have a lot of diversified assets. This seems to work. For most people, most of the time. Well, I would say that probably the, the home, having a home and using it as a forced savings program, in essence, you're more likely to pay the mortgage than you are to walk away from a lot of other money that you might owe somebody because you don't want to lose your home. David says, I bought an investment real estate property, which appears to have worked out for the last 30 years. Not diversified, but it has an extremely high rate of return on equity and fairly low volatility. That's true. Now, this is a business. He's not talking about owning his own home. It's an investment and the reality is he has a lot of risk. The risk would include, well, liquidity. You need the money. Their house can be hard to sell. There is some volatility in the price of homes, as we found out in 2008. In fact, there are people who lost half the value of their home. Uh, the house that we bought on Bainbridge Island had been purchased by the people that uh, we bought it from. They bought it uh, out of uh, out of a bankruptcy and uh, out of a bank, and they got it for an absolute bargain. We didn't. 
they got it for probably one-third less than its value became literally probably within almost a year after they bought it. No complaints, we love it. But he all goes on to say, he says, I also own Vanguard Index Funds, but the real estate held until retirement was the better investment by far, even though not diversified. I wish I had bought more non-diversified real estate and less index funds. Well, again, oh, he also adds, and this is important, Bill Gates and lots of others held a huge percentage of his wealth in Microsoft stock from day one, which as it turns out was a pretty good non-diversified investment. He's certainly not alone in successfully putting all his eggs in one basket. I mean, that's an open and shut case. Remember, as I've said many times, there's no risk in the past. We should have put all of our money in Microsoft in 1986 and just ignored the stock market. You'd be doing just fine. But we know that because we know the outcome. What we don't know is what was the future of Flaky Jake's, a, a, a restaurant chain that didn't make it. What about Enron, a company that a lot of people had all their life savings in the 401k within Enron. There are lots of examples where people didn't do well with public companies On the other hand, uh, my biggest return was in a completely illiquid company that had little uh, right to necessarily become a big company, but it did, and I was there when it did. It was like a house to me. It was my company. It was my home. I would be there. At four o'clock in the morning, that's as close to home as I as I know to be there early and leave late. And it was a great place to be and a great company to grow. And yes, I made more money than I would have made in the S&P 500, but they have nothing in common. I never had to go to work for John Bogle. He did everything, and it was liquid in one day. So really, oh, and the other thing, and I'm not picking on you, David. I don't. I have no idea how you really did on your investment, except that you think that you did well. Well, first of all, let me tell you about a study out of... Uh, I read about it in Your Money and Your Brain by Jason Zweig. The study was asking people who should know what kind of a rate of return that they had had on their investments in the previous years. I don't remember if it went back 10 years or 5 years, but it was a period of time that seemed like you might have been able to have have guessed closely, fairly close. And it turned out that they... I think they they guessed something like 4 or 5% more per year than they actually made. 
And they were smart people who should have had a, a better idea. It's just that people, people don't really, in most cases, know what rate of return they've had. It's hard to judge. You put money in at different times. You take money out at different times. Most people don't track the return of their portfolio. And a lot of people, I know, um, I've had uh, just one piece of rental property. Didn't buy it for that, but it turned out to be that. And um, I know all the money that's gone into that piece of property. Uh, I know uh, the expenses that came up that had to be things that needed to be repaired now. I, I know the taxes that were paid, and uh, I'll ha- I probably will have no idea when we sell that piece of property how I did, uh, because I I don't I don't really pay much attention, and if I get out with more money than I put in, and I say I did that, I'll probably think, hey, I did okay. So it's much easier to be able to look at the Morningstar report. And if you owned, if you owned S and P five hundred from nineteen ninety five to nineteen ninety nine, and you never put any more in or took any out, and you can look at the report, it says it compounded at over twenty eight percent a year for five years. You can legitimately say I made twenty eight and a half percent for five years. But most people don't have a clue. But I am in agreement with you, David, that when you have a business and you have your finger on the pulse of what's going on in that business, uh, then there is a high probability that... Oh, let me change that. There's actually... If it's a real business, most people don't make money on businesses. Most people lose money on businesses. In fact, as I've said before, I think last week, long-term studies show going back to 1928, I think it is, that half of the public companies had negative rates of return over the life of their public offerings. So it doesn't shock me to find out that Not all people do well with their investments, just as not all, I'm talking public investments, and not all people do well with private companies. But the ones that make it and are able to liquidate and get out what it's worth, uh, those ought to pay a very fancy premium. And this will be the last one today. I was going to do 10, but I didn't make it. Number eight. this is an easy one, but uh, I'll do a, make it a quickie. I'm looking to set up a Roth IRA account. I have limited knowledge of all things finance, but I'm looking to make money grow. I have found M1 Finance and want to make my Roth IRA using one of Paul's pies. If using one of Paul's pre-built portfolio pies... Uh, Should I be looking at the ultimate buy-and-hold tax-deferred or taxable? 
uh, for my Roth IRA. Well, I understand where that uh, confusion comes from because a Roth IRA is not tax-deferred, it's tax-free. But the portfolio you should be looking at will be what is called the tax-deferred because basically that has different kinds of bonds and secondly, it has, uh, uh, it has REITs in it because you don't have to worry about the tax inefficiency of REITs. So there you go. I hope something there was helpful and uh, I hope you come back next week and join Chris and Daryl, myself, in a discussion about the best in class and all of our portfolios that, uh, that we're building uh, hope you take a look this week so you can throw throw us some questions we can cover in that uh, in that discussion. It's always a pleasure being with you. I hope I hope this helps. We love the questions as I said earlier and we'll 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 get to as many as we can. If you aren't subscribing to the newsletter, I hope you will as we do answer some questions there. And we have links to other articles that we think will be helpful uh, to investors. Thanks for listening. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.